0: Many of you have asked for it, and so I spent some of my paternity leave creating it, an introductory Stoicism course. The best part? I've launched it using Gumroad's pay-what-you-want model. So if you want to pay $0, you can get the course for free. That's right, free. Learn more and enroll in the course by going to understandingstoicism.com. That's understandingstoicism.com. Welcome back to Practical Stoicism. I am your host, Tanner Campbell, and I'm glad you're here. Today, we've got a question from a listener by the name of Stanislav, and we're covering meditation number 34 from book four, which we will cover first and which reads as follows. Willingly give thyself up to Clotho, one of the fates, allowing her to spin thy thread into whatever thing she pleases. It's about time we got into Amor Fati, isn't it? Feels like we're about a hundred meditations into the meditations and fati hasn't really cropped up too many times, if at all. Here's the rundown on fati before we get started. First, fati is Latin. It means love thy fate or love of fate or love one's fate, depending on the context within which it is used. Also, the saying is not part of Greek Stoicism, though the idea, of course, is. When you say amor fati, it's important to realize that you're using Latin to talk about an originally Greek philosophical concept. It's one of the reasons you don't hear me use it a lot, though Kai Whiting and I do have a chapter dedicated to it, amor fati, in our upcoming book. Marcus Aurelius never used it, and not just because he wrote in Koine Greek, but because he never used it, period. No one used it until, it seems, Friedrich Nietzsche. So, when you're amorfatiing all over the place, just know that you're using a pretty modern term to describe a pretty ancient concept. But those misgivings out of the way, what is that ancient concept? What is amorfati? You've probably heard the dog and the cart analogy. I've used it here on the podcast before, but let me try another one, a different analogy. Imagine you're in a canoe, floating down a river, and you've got a paddle. The river is flowing. That's time. That's part of fate. You're going to reach the end of the river and you cannot stop its flow. You can, however, use your paddle to direct yourself downstream. Maybe you see an island or a sandbar that you'd like to paddle over to and have a picnic or meet up with a few friends. Your paddle gives you that latitude. But your paddle doesn't stop the rain, the wind, the river's flow the fact that you must return to the river after you're done visiting your friends on that sandbar, and it also doesn't control who you may or may not encounter on the river, and specifically how they'll treat you when you encounter them. Amor Fati suggests, first, that we recognize this utterly overwhelming lack of control we have about our passage from birth to death, to recognize that and accept it. Then, we want to look for gratitude in the situation. Because if we're just a bunch of cranky jerks, we're not going to enjoy our trip down the river because we're going to spend it complaining about the weather, or the people, or whatever. We should first say, oh, wait a minute, I do have a little control here. I can get out of the canoe and go for a swim. I can go fishing from the canoe, catch some fish, paddle over to shore, cook the fish, and hang out with my buddies who are on this river trip with me. This is the other part of fate. When you arrive at the end of the river, your fate is everything that happened while you were on it. And while you're paddling or drifting, your fate is being written partially by that which you cannot control, but also partially by that which you can. This is why the Stoics said that fate happens through us just as much as it happens to us. It's also why the Stoics did not view determinism and free will as being in conflict with one another. So it rains. Okay, that's fate. You decide to either dance in that rain, wallow in that rain, or go inside. Those choices are yours, and once you've made them, they become your fated actions because they're now in the past. You're co author, if you will, of your fate in your little canoe with your little paddle. Amor Fati asks us to find the incredibleness in this and really love and appreciate that paddle and our power of choice. Because what's the alternative to doing so? We sit in our canoe, bitching and moaning about how nothing ever goes our way? We sit there never touching our paddle, just drifting and complaining about the current or the weather or the views or the temperature? If we love our fate, part of that love is loving the creative control we have over it, loving our paddle, loving our freedom, loving the flexibility we have within a semi-rigid system. It is no coincidence that so many philosophies tell you to practice gratitude, and that's sort of what Amor Fati is instructing us to do, to be grateful for our paddle and our power of choice, where and when those things can be leveraged to change things within their power to control. So grab your paddle, as often as you can, and paddle around a little bit. Use it to do good things in the world. Use it to have experiences that matter. Use it to spend time with friends and to help those in need just be sure to use it and love it amor paddle this episode is brought to you in part by prize picks america's number 1 fantasy sports app with over 3 million members they are without a doubt the easiest way to play CFS. It's just you versus the numbers. You pick more than or less than on 2-6 to player stat projections and watch the winnings roll in. With the big game right around the corner, prize picks is the easiest and most exciting way to turn every game-changing moment into 100 times your money because with as little as 4 correct picks, you can turn $10 into $1,000. Offer expires post-Super Bowl. With quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, and an enormous selection of player and stat types, it's no wonder PrizePix is the number one daily fantasy sports app. I've got friends that use prize picks and they absolutely swear by it. So if daily fantasy sports is your thing, you've got to give prize picks a try. Go to prizepicks.com forward slash practical and use the code PRACTICAL for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com forward slash practical with code PRACTICAL for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Okay, now. How about Stanislav's question? Here it is.
1: Hey, Tanner, Stanislav here. Love the podcast. Really appreciate all the work you're doing. One thing I've been thinking about recently, in light of the fact that one of the principal tenets of Stoicism is to live a life of service and to be useful to those around you and in your community, how do we reconcile that with the fact that there are people out there, uh, I think we all can think of some examples, who will take advantage of your desire to do service and your desire to be helpful and do so to an extent that can, you know, in an extreme case, burn you out as an individual. If you feel as though you're constantly doing things for a person or or group of people. And how do we think about that in relation to continuing to live a life of service, but also, doing so in a way that's mindful of the fact that there are cases where, for lack of a better term, people sort of have to help themselves. I really appreciate your insight on the question and uh, look forward to hearing from you.
0: I appreciate the question, Stanislav, and I would like to remind everyone before I answer it that if they would like to have a question answered on this podcast, they can go to podinbox.com forward slash stoicism and record that question there. There's a link in this episode's show notes so that you can go and do that if you have a question you'd like me to answer. So this question from Stanislav cuts through whatever feel-good kumbaya element there might be to Stoicism and asks, point blank, how do we know when it's time to stop helping because people have become dependent on our help? Or how do we know when someone is taking advantage of us, and what do we do about it? I'd be willing to bet that we have all been taken advantage of in this manner before. I once had a friend, his girlfriend had cheated on him, and the guy she cheated on him with was also my friend. The friend, the one who cheated on the other friend's girlfriend, stay with me, it's confusing, told me about it in a very gloating manner one day while we were out for beers. It put me in a really uncomfortable spot because, well, what was I supposed to do? I told the guy, why did you tell me that? You know I have to tell him now, I can't not tell him you did that. And I left. A week or so later, I got this friend to go kayaking with me because I wanted to tell him somewhere where he wouldn't flip out when I told him. And being precariously balanced in a kayak in the intercoastal waterway of Palm Beach is a place that would ensure he couldn't flip out too much without literally flipping over. So I told him. He was upset. He left his girlfriend and had nowhere to go. They lived together. I offered my home to him. At the time, I was in a 1-1 apartment with my girlfriend, Brittany the same girlfriend I have today. This was maybe 11 years ago. He slept on the couch, and I didn't charge him anything but the electric bill, which was maybe $80 a month. And I did that because I didn't want him to feel like he was freeloading. People can feel that way if they're not contributing. I told him he could stay as long as he needed. He stayed for almost eight months. For almost eight months, he got drunk every night, did nothing to better his situation, seemed to be saving no money, and was a genuinely disruptive presence in our lives. Brittany and I actually almost split up over it. I'm sure some of the guys listening maybe can identify with the kind of argument you might have with your girlfriend when trying to convince her that you've gotta let the guy stay, he's your best friend. It's a really uncomfortable spot to be in. And then one day, as was probably inevitable, something happened that couldn't be excused. I don't need to recount it here, but it was definitely one of those the straw that broke the camel's back kind of moments. So I kicked him out, and within a couple of weeks, lo and behold, he had a new place. A pretty good place, actually, that if I'm not mistaken, I even helped him move into. If you can't tell, it's kind of hard for me to stop being decent to you even after you spend eight months getting drunk in my living room and doing nothing to better yourself. Here, I think we have a perfect real-life example of what Stanislav is talking about. There are some people that will take your charity and use it up until you tell them you won't give it to them anymore, and then magically, they'll sort things out all on their own, as if your help was never needed in the first place, and they were just taking advantage of you. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that a person doesn't realize they can stand on their own until they have to. I think, for most people, in most situations, it's a little bit of column A, and a little bit of column B, in that most people need a little charity, sometimes, and most people also need to be cut off from that charity before it becomes more of an enabling hindrance than it does a helping hand. You can probably recollect this poster where you've got one shadowed figure climbing a mountain, and he's reaching back to another shadowed figure to give that other person a hand to help them get to where they are on the mountain. Imagine if that second person was just laying there and wasn't putting in any effort and just took that helping hand and forced it to lift the dead weight up and did nothing for themselves. That would be a much less useful motivational poster, I think. And it's very, very easy as mere mortals to go to one of the two extreme ends of the spectrum in response to this sort of thing. Either you say something like, charity is a thing that enables people in a bad way. It prevents them from ever standing on their own two feet. Charity is for the weak. Or charity is useless. Or in the other direction, which is, I would rather be endlessly kind to other people and have them depend on that kindness than leave them to suffer. Right on the one end, we have this stingy, jaded Scrooge. And on the other end, we have this selfless individual who actually takes away from their own contentment and happiness in life and allows other people to drain them. A sucker, you might say. Although, of course, a sucker whose heart is rooted in a good place, but still a sucker. So I think the first thing to do is to recognize that everyone needs a little help from time to time, and it's not bad to help someone, and it's not bad to ask for help. But if help is being given for too long, it can prevent a person from growing. You can imagine it like a plant. If you've got a sick plant, you need to give it special care. And maybe that plant deserves to be given special care. That's up to you, of course. But if you overwater it or over pamper it or over care for it, you're probably going to kill it. And that's because in the case of overwatering, a plant doesn't know when to stop taking the extra water it's being given. So you drown it. And the same can happen to people. They don't necessarily know that accepting the charity in an ongoing capacity is preventing them from becoming self-reliant. A Stoic, I think, should always be willing to help. But what their help should be working towards is irrelevancy. You want to put yourself out of business as a philanthropist, right? That's the goal. You don't just want to feed a poor kid You want to feed a poor kid and teach the poor kid a trade so they can get a job and feed themselves and one day help someone else who needs the same kind of help they needed all those years ago. That's the goal. We want to fix the problem, not have the problems be continual. Stanislav's question, though, is more about when do you know it's time to pull the plug and abandon an existing effort? This is just my opinion, but here it is. Enter into the help you provide with terms. Simple fair, decent terms. I could have told my friend, look, I'll give you three months to lick your wounds, be sad, get drunk in the living room and not look for a job. That's fine. I get it. Life sucks sometimes and we all need a reprieve from its ravages. But after that, I need you to be saving money and looking for a job and I need to see that you're doing those things. And I'll provide you with three more months of shelter and support so long as you're doing that. At the end of six months, we're going to sit down and talk about where you are and we'll go from there. With hand-to-mouth charity, I'll admit I'm not a big proponent of it. When I see a homeless individual, for example, on the street, I'm not going to give them cash because I will not be part of increasing their suffering in the event that they use that cash to purchase something that would do that or to purchase things that wouldn't help them. And I think you get my meaning. Plus, no amount of money I could give in an exchange like this would be able to give them the roughly $10,000 and six months worth of time they would need to go from homeless to home full and gainfully employed and self-sufficient. I don't have that ability as a regular person because I don't have that much disposable income. Most people don't. It would be great to be able to walk up to any homeless person and say, hey, I've got job training for you. I've got a job for you. I'm going to set you up with a salary and we're going to get you in a home and we're going to get your life on track. It would be great if I or you or anybody could do that. Most of us can't. However, I will almost always offer a meal or donate mittens or coats or at the very least buy them a coffee when they ask me for money and I'm near a place that sells coffee or food or other drinks. But outside of this, I don't really do hand-to-mouth charity because it's not helpful or impactful in the long term. I am a big fan of working with small charities, local ones specifically, who have great operating ethos. And there are plenty of them. You have to look for them, but they're all over the place. They aren't the big guys. They're the little guys, the ones whose boots are on the ground in the communities we live in. Find those organizations, schedule a meeting with them, tell them you've got $50,000 you'd like to donate over the course of a year or two, if you have that kind of money, and you have some questions about how they do things. They will take that money because that kind of money for a small nonprofit goes a really long way. And after that meeting, you'll be able to make more informed decisions about how your money's gonna be used and whether or not you wanna donate it. For larger concepts of charity, and I think Stanislav was maybe getting at this a little bit, Things like unemployment assistance or other forms of government programs, these social safety nets, these programs can be highly controversial when you get into the weeds of examining their effectiveness. Because the truth is that the government isn't really very effective at stuff, and these programs can be really effective in City Q and really, really ineffective in City Z. And since you're a regular taxpayer, it can be really frustrating when you live in City Z because you don't really have a say in how your money's being utilized. In these situations, these City Z type situations, I can only suggest two things. First, measure your frustration. Because your ability to do anything about it is very limited. The dichotomy of control can be a very frustrating thing to keep in mind when you know the success rate of a government program in your city is less than 30%. I've lived in cities like that, and it can be absolutely maddening to see the incompetent execution of well-intentioned plans, especially when it involves your money. Then number two, decide whether or not you want to do anything about it. Do you want to accept it as being out of your control and focus on the areas of charity and assistance where you feel you can have more influence and can create better outcomes? Or do you want to run for office and get involved in changing these larger programs over the course of many years because that is what it will take? It's one or the other, and there's probably an in-between road there like advocacy of some kind or spreading awareness, but you've got to make peace with whatever choice you make. So to wrap up, Enter into your charitable actions with clear intentions and considerations. You're going to provide X, and you expect Y within Z amount of time. If you don't see Y within Z amount of time, you're going to withdraw future support and redirect it somewhere else. There's nothing wrong with expecting your charitable contributions to effect change. In fact, I would say that too many people stop at making the donation and couldn't care less whether or not it's put to good use. They just feel good about the money they gave and they feel like they're off the hook because they gave money. Hey, I did my good deed. That's not very thoughtful giving. Charitable work is hard work. Both as an agent of change with boots on the ground, and I know all about this, ask me sometime, I'll tell you stories, I don't think I need to pat myself on the back so I won't, but being boots on the ground is hard work, and it's also hard work for the philanthropist wanting to foot the bill to make that change possible, because you've got people on the ground doing the work and you've got people with money footing the bill. And if you're a good philanthropist, you really, really care about whether or not the money you're providing to do this work is being used well and actually making change. It's not just cutting a check and being done with it. Not if you actually care, not if you really want to see change. It's hard work. And as far as people who will take and take and take until you've got nothing left to give, Being clear in the conditions of your support should help to identify these people before they do too much damage or detract for too long from other good things you could be doing. Don't let the work of being helpful wear you down. You can't control how other people behave. All you can do is make virtuous decisions based on the information you have at the time you make them. If you find out your decisions were based on falsehoods later, or maybe they weren't great decisions, you're not any less virtuous, and your actions weren't any less appropriate. You couldn't have known. Just be mindful and act appropriately. I hope that helps, Stanislav. And again, I'll mention that if you would like a question answered on this podcast, you can submit it over at podinbox.com forward slash stoicism, and there is a link in the show notes of this episode to do just that. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Practical Stoicism. If you haven't yet, please consider leaving this podcast a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. And if you'd like to get rid of ads, remember you can do so at stoicismpod.com forward slash members. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, take care.